You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Hi, I'm Jenny Thompson from Her World Cricket Tour, and you're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. And joining me on today's cricket discussion is a person who has embarked on a once-in-a-lifetime journey, travelling the world to promote women's cricket via Her World Cricket Tour and to celebrate the great game of cricket. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jenny Thompson. Jenny, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Uh, it's great to have you here, Jenny, and, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat today about this incredible journey that you've embarked on, uh, touring, the, touring the globe, the world, playing cricket. You know, that a lot of people are going to be envious, if I can use that word, Jenny, of you after this podcast and saying, oh, I wish I could do that. Uh, but I suppose you've embarked on this journey. We'll talk about that as we get on into this discussion. Um, about this incredible journey, but it's also um, a journey of celebrating the game, but also celebrating women's cricket, and we'll talk more about that as, as we get into it. But first of all, Jenny, as I do with all my guests, I'd like to take them back to when they first got into cricket, and it's been very fascinating listening to people's memories on how they got started into cricket, Jenny. So let's go back to the very beginning, Jenny, growing up, which is a very long time. Um, what were your earliest memories of watching, playing, and even going to the cricket? And who were some of the cricketing idols that you looked up to growing up? Well, um, cricket was omnipresent in my family. It's very much our family sport. And um, my earliest memory is, <laughs> is going around the painted boundary line while my mum was watching my dad playing and saying to my mum, I can't find the end. And she'd sent me off on one of these apprentices' missions uh, because she just wanted five minutes to watch the game. And she kept saying, no, it's there, just keep going. So I did many laps and couldn't find the uh, the end of the line. So in the end, it quickly occurred to me when I'd go around to my both sets of grandparents' houses and cricket was on there, on the telly, cricket was on at home, cricket was everywhere, that... Um, I had to play myself, particularly because my brother had got me to be a backyard bowler so he could practice his batting. Um, I had no concept that women played cricket at that time. And it was one of the most brilliant days of my life when, when I was 11 at school. Our year cricket teacher for the boys, who was also a woodwork teacher, Colin Dunkley, he was also Lanks under-19 coach. And he said to me, oh, I saw you bowling there, warming the guys up who were batting. I want you to come and play in the team. And I got to play cricket at school alongside the boys. And it was a dream come true. And then a year later, my mum spotted in the paper that women's cricket was setting up in our area. And it was like going down the rabbit hole because I had no idea that it existed because of course there was no visibility in the media whatsoever and this was the early 90s and if you knew anything about women's cricket the only thing you'd ever heard was Rachel Hayhoe Flint which was 20 years earlier so there was no idea that cricket still existed 
And then I got into a bit of a pathway. Um, and I was so lucky to have those opportunities with cricket. Um, something that I'd never, ever considered that could be a possibility, particularly not when I was in primary school. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, great to hear that uh, early introduction into the game, Jenny. Any cricketing idols that you admired? Um, well, that that's an interesting um topic because these days of course you can have many female cricketing mm. idols and it would have been lovely to have grown up in that era but um that wasn't obviously a thing in my time but um my birth county is cheshire who have actually been quite a force in women's cricket but um for the men's cricket we i'd go down with my granddad and we'd go to Old Trafford so we had in those days Mike Watkinson was the captain Michael Atherton would play occasionally when he wasn't playing for England um so we had a lot of local heroes Wazim Akram played um a Lancashire he was my favorite overseas player and of course he's bowling but the amount of times he dug us out of a hole to win a one day with his batting was incredible he and just the char charisma of him playing, so amazing. Um, in the fast bowlers club, I used to, I used to try. Like you can imagine what most teenage girls are doing. Not me. I was um, trying to bowl like Murphys. He was my idol <laughs> with bowling. Um, obviously, Shane Ward. Like who can't love him? And in the fielding stakes, I mean, I'm. Not that coordinated, but John T. Rhodes, yeah. what a builder. And also what he showed is, you know, you see it now with someone like Labashane, the power of just application, yeah. just keeping on, keeping on, keeping on, doing your drills. And that's when you, you know, ally with your natural talent and you become the genius. So yeah. I would say they were my, they were my idols. Yeah, uh, pretty good idols to to look up to. Um, how would you describe yourself as a as a cricketer? Well, um, in sort of technically, I used to be uh, more of a bowler who bats. These days, I'm a batter who bowls. But only recently, I tried out keeping for the first time, which happened to be in Norway very unexpected um, situation and I really loved keeping and then I was talking with mum about it and she said oh I used to be a keeper and this was complete news to me but I did know that her dad um, was a keeper and he also was a smoker and he he was also very comedy unintentionally and uh, one time he dived and his uh, matches were in his pocket and he set his trousers on fire <laughs> So whenever I <laughs> whenever I think about my granddad playing cricket, I think of that. Um, yeah, so I think I would have loved to have been a keeper as well. But you can't do everything. No. Um, but <laughs> I suppose you have to try at least everything once. At of course. Uh, um, in the game. Um, you know, and in life. Sorry? Mm -hmm. And in life. You've got to try everything yeah. once in life. Yeah. All right. 
you know, life's too short. Why not? You know, give it a go. Yeah, you may not be good at it, but eh, at least you had fun and gave it a red hot crack. So that yeah. was good and, to hear you. Yeah, sorry. And you always learn something from everything. Mm. Oftentimes I'll look at something and can't understand why people are into it. Then you have a go and you're like, well, it might not be for me, but I kind of understand why you do it now, you know. I yeah. always like trying things for that reason. Yeah, there's a, there's a science behind it, a particular science behind everything that we do in life. And also mm -hmm. in terms of bashing technique, bowling action, fielding, uh, even wiki-keeping technique as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes. Um, so um, you're still involved in, in, in cricket, obviously. You're still involved in cricket. You still play cricket now. Uh, tell us about, mm -hmm. um, you know, playing cricket now much, uh, not much later in life, but, you know, as mm -hmm. you get older and uh, the years go by. Um, just describe how's it been playing cricket in this sort of time for you? Well, I actually had a decade out of cricket because I was so immersed in it. I burnt out. So I was um, an assistant editor at Crick Info and then I was playing and then every conversation in my life ever was about cricket. So it just needed a break and that break happened to be 10 years. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I got back into playing and it, it was a whole new world um, in terms of now it's 2020, everything's 2020. And also um, just the, the general landscape for women's cricket is so much better. Um, but in terms of playing as an older player, well, I always look at Jimmy as a great example. I tell you what, this time round... I'm fitter and I'm I'm actually strong as well. I never did any strength and conditioning back in the day because it wasn't a thing. So I um, I've got a lot better balance now because I'm strong. I've I can bowl faster. I'm actually my dad um, has watched me play a lot recently. He said you you're actually you're a lot better player now than you were, you know back when you were, if you want to say, in inverted commas, successful. So that's been interesting. But also, I really apply a growth mindset to everything that I do. So for me, this tour, or even if I wasn't on tour, but I think there's always, always something to learn. So in Brazil, I learned reverse sweeping, which was something that has not been in my armour before. Um, like I said, in Norway I was keeping for the first time and also they had a fast bowling masterclass on while I was there with the opening bowler for Norway Vinay and I said to him you know I've got quite technically a good action but my follow-through is non-existent so we fixed that so that's that's a really cool thing about cricket is there's always something to learn and you can always improve and this year I want to try doing the ramp shot and also, even though I'm a qualified coach, I qualified so long ago that we weren't taught how to teach a sliding stop in fielding. Yeah. That just did not exist. And then I've never had that 
um, teaching either. So I'm very keen for that. I'm actually going to make a note now so I can do that on my tour this yeah. year, uh, sliding. Yeah, yeah it is. Just, you know, you, you left the game for 10 years and you come back and everything's changed, even coaching. It's changed from 20 years ago. I know, but I love that, right? Because mm. cricket has to evolve to survive, to thrive. So yeah. we're seeing that and it, it's exciting. Like I, we were talking before that we're both quite traditionalists and old school, but, you know, we have to embrace change at the same time. It's yeah. just that balance, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. Um, um, you're going to try and replicate Joe Root's um, ramp shot that he plays? <laughs> Jenny? Just any ramp shot would be would be good. I wouldn't put myself up at <laughs> Joe Root level, but you know, it would just be interesting well. to see if I could do it. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. Any mm. particular memory that sticks out for you in your time playing cricket that you look back and say that was a pretty pretty cool time? Um, any any moment that sticks out in your head um, when it comes to that? Um, well. I did play some England under 21, some England under 17. I was with the cohort that went on to win the 2009 World Cup. So, you know, Charlotte Edwards, I played with Laura McLeod, uh, actually captained her at County once or twice. I was British Udy's uh, North captain and in that team, that was really, really cool. But you know what? I never went on a cricket tour overseas and it was something that I always wanted to do. So I've always had that at the back of my mind. Um, when I was at Crick Info, we had a global editorial conference in Goa and we had India versus the rest of the world and they appointed me captain of the rest of the world. So I captained Greg Chappell, which was really cool when he was uh, coaching India. And um, I also hit Warney for four. That's uh, one of my favourite cricketing memories. And then he didn't like it, so he bowled me three times in succession because he's Shane Warne and that's what he can do. Um, but I just love that he cared, you know, because I'm pretty much no one. And uh, he didn't like being hit before by a woman who he had assumed could not play cricket because I was female because yeah. we went out into the middle at the Rose Bowl and I picked up my bat and he said, oh, can you play? I said, well, did you think I couldn't because I'm female? He said, yes. I said, well, let's see. And then he did bowl me a really slow full toss and he didn't have any socks or shoes on, but that's not the point. I still... Yeah. Hit him through square for my favourite pull shot before. Yeah. Oh, incredible memory. And obviously, uh, you know, he's no longer with us, Warnie. Uh, sadly, passed away a few years ago. Um, obviously, you know, so many people were touched by him and his performances. Um, obviously, I met him, as we talked about before we started this mm -hmm. interview. And as you can see behind me, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the poster he signed of his book, um, which was a great moment for me. And that will that will probably be my most happiest cricket memory of meeting him in my entire life. So I can relate to, you know, when you meet your idols or you meet particular players that you looked up to and say, wow, I can't believe that he's had, in your case, you know, he, he was bowling to you. He didn't bowl you a flipper by any chance, did he? <laughs> um, he just bowled one which went 
right past her. I was like, what was that? I said, well, that was the wrong girl. And I was like, okay, I'm completely mesmerized. But I just do want to say that, you know, you mentioned he sort of touched lots of people on the pitch, but off the pitch, I mean, you've met him, so you would understand his charisma. But the several times that I got to meet him, I was just so impressed with him as a human being. He had time for every single person. Journalists would, you could ask him any question, he'd answer it, you dead in the eye, he'd think about it. Not, you know, nothing. I don't know how he created this time for himself. It's almost like he lived 10 lives in his short life. And I remember one time at Hampshire, sorry, at the Oval, when he was captaining Hampshire and it was a cold day. Hans were having a terrible session. And all he wanted to do was trudge off the pitch at tea, have a smoke, put his feet up, you know, just forget really the session and there were a clamor of kids waiting for him on the stairs and he sort of trudged off and then he looked at them when he saw them and his demeanor completely changed he was like hey kids how are you and he had all the time in the world for every single person and as I've gone round, you know I've spoken to lots of people who were fortunate enough to meet him, and everybody everybody tells such a similar story uh yeah. what what a man he's he he was beyond i mean you can't be beyond unique, but he certainly he was unique. I've never seen anyone as magnetic as that or oh, just, yeah. just what a man hmm. yeah I, I couldn't agree more he was so kind and warm that warmth that you feel yeah from him. and when i met him i was very nervous and he said don't be nervous mm -hmm. mate mm -hmm. and we had a chat and um it was great you know he's, he's just a, a wonderful human being sadly taken too mm -hmm. early from us but he provided those great memories that will live on in our lives forever um, that's right which is wonderful um you, you have mentioned it jenny that you were a journalist of course for ESPN cricket mm -hmm. first, um covering women's cricket um and then you you're going to find yourself branching into becoming an author writing a book because mm -hmm. you're going to be recounting your cricket tour mm -hmm. which is going to be a very long book indeed it's going to be very <laughs> very right. big and, and it's going to have many chapters so you're going to branch out into being an author as well but uh, why did you choose to go into journalism Jenny what um, well, I've, I've always loved stories and people are fascinated by human behavior and with cricket being a real specialist subject and also the sport of any with the best stories, I thought there was, it, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a question of whether I was going to do it. It was just, that's what I was going to do. So from when I was 14, I was writing match reports for the local paper. And then when I got to Crick Info, um, I covered extensively men's cricket, but also women's cricket. So I was actually the first woman in the world to do the ball-by-ball -ball online commentary for test matches, which which remains a massive honour and I'm very, very passionate, very passionate about 
women's representation in the media across all forms of I mean we can come back on to this but you know particularly in sports media and you know in in my case and mo most others it certainly was not tokenism because I've got a very extensive background in the game as uh, at that point I'd done lots of interviews and experience but and I um, qualified as a journalist on top of my English degree but also I had the playing pedigree yeah now that's uh, fantastic to hear how you got into that um are there any favorite cricket books or that you've read uh, to get inspiration because you're going to be writing your own book um and um what's been your favorite interview in terms of interviewing a player in your time so if you can answer that mm -hmm. okay so with when it comes to the books again i'm super passionate in that i realized not that long ago that there are more books on bradman than there are on the entirety of women's cricket i mean yeah. that is quite an astonishing and actually quite disgusting stat which yeah. is an indictment if you ask me on the um, publishing industry and the lack of support traditionally for women's cricket in the media and then the lack of investment and it's been an awful vicious circle so in that respect um, I have enjoyed cricket books the well-written ones on women's cricket history so Rachel Hayhoe as she was at the time, certainly wrote one or two excellent books, one about herself, one about cricket in general. It was very interesting. I'm currently catching up on um, an England women's tour to India book, which at the time was um, very well received, particularly by those in the touring party, because they told me it's absolutely spot on with what happened. Um, so yeah, that's called Mad Dogs and English Women. I'm not quite sure about that title, never have been, but yeah, for example, Laura McLeod's on that tour and she's, she told me at the time and she told me recently, um, it was so well observed. I'm really enjoying that because as you can imagine, um, I, love, I love a cricket tour book because I love people, travel yeah. and cricket. And you know, you meet the best people through cricket and you hear the craziest stories mm. when you're traveling or you get mixed up in them yourself. So there's some excellent, excellent cricket travel books. Um, so Angus Bell, Batting on the Bosphorus, is an incredible book. And I was really, really fortunate to meet him in Montreal. And he showed me around Montreal cricket. It's, it's an astonishing book. It, it remains my favorite. Um, Penguin Stop Play, of course, is both brilliant and tragic. Um, also, Cricket on Everest by my friend Alan Kerr, who's operations manager at Japan Cricket. Uh, disclosure, I edited that book. But that's a really fascinating book about um, trying to set the world record for playing the world's highest match on Everest, as the yep. title suggests. Alex Blackwell's Fair Game is 
an astonishing, astonishing book. And it was very interesting to read the insights into the inside story of what I had supposed was going on from the outside. So, yeah, and I think the thing is there were that many, that many untold stories of women in cricket that with my book, one of my aims is to tell these stories and hopefully have them as a launching pad for books to be written thereon. You spoke to Roberta, her yeah. personal story. I stayed with her for a week in Brazil. Her personal story is incredible, particularly, you know, the switch from being a pro mm. golfer to a cricketer, fantastic. Um, being part of Brazil, giving women contracts ahead of the men, set, setting a precedent for the world. Absolutely astonishing. Uh, my friend, Josie Trias, captain of the Philippines, she's the first domestic helper in the world to lead an international sports team. I stayed with her for a, for a week. Um, this is the second time I'd caught up with her. I started my tour in Hong Kong last year where she works, and then I went to her home island of Negros in the Philippines in December, just gone. And um, her story, it, it's I, I, we haven't got, I mean, you know, I'm sure you and I could have lovely discussions that go on for months, but you need about a month just for her story. It's really incredible. And then you asked me another question, and what was it? Because I just uh, went off on one. I replied the interview as your time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My favorite interview. Um, yeah, well, I feel that uh, despite the fact that I've worked professionally in cricket and have done many interesting interviews, and I would think Claire Connors was one when she was just deciding to go into cricket administration uh, just about just after the time where the ECB had taken um, over from the Women's Cricket Association. Uh, it was a really, really interesting time. So that was very interesting. And at that time, um, you know, she was winning, she was winning um, the Ashes and driving around her student who was in the team, Holly Colvin. And, you know, it was a totally different time and we were advocating for professionalism. So that was an interesting time. But I have to say that there's not one particular interview that I can draw on from my tour just to date. But... Just to tell you, I have met that many inspirational women and I featured their stories on my socials in a very introductory way so far, but there will be so many more coming. So, for example, the captain or the outgoing captain of Argentina, Vero Vasquez, she's um, an anaesthetist, a single mom. She's on the board. She's captain. She's a leader. And she has faced that and continues to face that much prejudice just by playing. Um, and then I just recently spoke with Kerry Tomlinson in New Zealand, who's the first, who's the captain of the first 
Maori team to take to the field, which was humbling and emotional to witness. And, you know, what she's done and what she's been a part of, and she's been long been an advocate for this, is just incredible. So what I'm saying is I like the stories where, and it tends to be women because women tend to face much more disadvantage and structural barriers to playing. So it tends to be the women who, to me, are the most inspirational because I always think, why Why do you want to do this? And why do you want to keep fighting? And how inspirational you are to have made all the change that you have. And also... Often people say you can't be what you can't see, but I'm not sure I always believe in that. Like I love role models. That's great. But some people have to be the trailblazers. Some people have to do that. And I have met so many trailblazers so far and it makes me really excited and inspired and I think also with my tour, because you can imagine it's quite an undertaking and not the obvious thing to do, and it's it's so massive and it can be really daunting that whenever I speak with inspirational women, and I've only told you about the international players, there's many um, club players who are unreal who will be featured in my book as well, but... They're my favourite because they give me the fuel and the energy and the inspiration to keep to keep driving forward myself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just wonderful to hear um, you um, talking through that, and um, you know, just being touched by so many people's stories, but also journey as well. Because everyone's mm-hmm. path into cricket and life is different, so it's. It's wonderful Absolutely. that they have this trust that they've been given to you to tell their story and have that shared with many people around the world. It's just fascinating. Um, and, and it's a huge risk. Sorry. Uh, yeah, on that, that is, I feel very, very humbled by it, but also I feel daunted often yeah. by the huge responsibility that's been given to me with the trust, but also often I will be the only person telling these stories. So you want to get stories right anyway, but particularly if you're the only one telling them because it's very much on you to make sure that it's a faithful and accurate depiction. But already I've had so many, so many people come to me and say thank you so much giving me a platform to tell my story because you know I thought well I love stories and I'm having a a, a wonderful time meeting amazing people who are sharing but it's nice when people come back to me and say you know oh thank you because we feel we feel seen and we feel heard and you know I just say well you know, at the moment it's on my socials and in articles and everything. But I think to put everybody's story in the book is just going to be, I think it's really important to have that document there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be there for, for years and years to come mm. for people to read. And, and um, yeah, I can understand that entirely, um, that responsibility and wanting to do it right. And it's going to be a big book, that's for sure. It's going to be a million probably pages, I think, um, all the stories. Well, it's going to be a huge book. It's going to be my personal history interwoven into everything, plus a bit of slapstick because I am that kind of person who gets myself into situations, particularly yeah. travelling, and that's part yeah. of it because as a solo woman traveller, there hasn't been any cricket travel book in that realm and there's never been a global cricket tra travel book so it's going to be quite the unique book but believe it or not because I can't certainly speak a short story but I can definitely because I've been trained and I have to train myself I can tell a very punchy story very quickly so we'll have the highs the lows the laughs the sadnesses it's just going to be everything and you know I'm very very excited about this book because I know I just know what's going to be in it but I realize I'm so privileged to be in the position to collect all these stories and again going around you know I've had my tour dismissed as a great jaunt and to me it's it's not a holiday it's uh it's a very serious undertaking of um, recording everything that's going on in the world at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think everyone, even I'm excited for the book to come out and read it myself, because um, it's, as you said, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a personal record of your own journey, but also people's mm -hmm. journeys as well in cricket, mm -hmm. but as life in those countries that you've toured and visited. So it's uh, fantastic to hear that, Jenny. Um, a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, the next question I was going to ask is, I think you touched on it a little bit in terms of uh, females in cricket media, broadcasting and that, but what differences have you noticed from your time in the media covering women's cricket from when you started until now? What are the major differences? Yeah. Where do we begin? Uh, I guess I can tell you some very stark contrasts in that, um, for example, the first World 2020 that was jointly held in 2000 yeah. Yeah, in um, Taunton was the group stages for the women and I was the world's media. Yeah. And um, so, for example, I would just say, oh, you know, can I speak to Sarah Taylor, please? And they'd send her to the media box where it was just me. And um, then, you know, we got to the, this is such, this is such an important story. We got to the semi-final at the Oval and because it was the double header and because it was London, all the papers had sent their correspondents who wouldn't have seen women's cricket since 1993 probably because that was probably the last time that they'd had access to it on the television yeah. and of course that was the amateur era it was two and over it wasn't particularly exciting but neither could it be when women were not given those opportunities to be professionals uh, and so it, it's women's cricket for many years suffered from a lag of 
um, understanding, but that lack of understanding itself is understandable. So there we were at the Oval, and the journos knew to wind me up because I was quite reactive in those days. Uh, now I'm just proactive. But anyway, they, was, they said to me, Tomo, can the girls hit it off the square? And I could see Karen Walton coming into bat at that time. And I was playing club cricket with her. And I tell you, I have never heard a ball fizz harder and faster than when I was at the non-striker's end. Um, so I just said, oh, I don't know. Shall we see if they can or not? Anyway, um, she just smoked this six through square. It went flat into the crowds. And I said, oh, I, I, I guess women can hit the ball, A. Eh? And then Claire Taylor came in and masterminded the run chase, which brought England into the final. And that day I could feel and I could hear the perceptions from the media shift of what women's cricket was. And it was such a watershed moment because that was just the cusp of what was to come. And what I love about that day as well also is that Jared Kimber was in the crowd. This was before he was a professional journalist and he's talked about that match as the match which made him want to cover women's cricket. So, you know, representation and um, coverage, it's, it's all so important, right? So then I've had my 10 years away from the game. And then I sort of come back two years ago. I'm going to an Adelaide Strikers women's match, which, you know, essentially is a domestic cricket match in Australia. Absolutely flooded with cameras and journos and everything. And then... That same season when I'd come back to cricket, I was in my cricket club, which had forever been a men's club. It was the first year they had women. And I had a lovely moment when I stood back on the bar and listened to the guys, because it was on the television, mm. and they were appraising the performances in the context of, oh, well, she's actually having a really good season but this is a shocker for her. Or oh, I'm surprised she's she's uh, come to the party today. And I thought, wow, this is how the landscape has changed just in that time. So I was actually invited to go and cover the inaugural WPL last year, but it was kind of at the start of my own tour and I had my own um, yep. agenda and things to do. But, I, you know, I mean, that would have been massively exciting in itself just because of the extreme figures involved in women's cricket. You see, it's not just the media now. It's the professionalism. It's the pay. It's that people are investing in women's cricket and women's sport, and that's no longer able to be ignored. Plus, we're having tailored clothing, tailored equipment, all stuff that we could not have dreamed of many years ago when we're wearing those ridiculous skirts and those long socks, totally impractical. Um, and so, you know, it's just changed out of sight. The media has changed out of sight. And, of course, it's a different landscape as well in terms of social media and all that kind of thing. But you and I, again, have talked. We're, we're traditionalists. That's why... 
I could have gone massive on my media, but my social media, but first of all, I want to be immersive when I'm going along on my tour. And secondly, to me, the important media for myself is my book. That's where yeah. all the stories are going to be. So that's also part of why I chose to go on the tour rather than come back into traditional mainstream cricket journalism per se, because to me, I've always gravitated when it comes to covering women's sport or advocating for women's sport in my local community, etc. I've always gone where I've perceived the need is. Now, how wonderful to see the extent of coverage for the women's cricket this, these days in the developed cricket nations like England, Australia, India, etc. I felt nobody needs me there. I want to go and see what's going on elsewhere. Yeah. And um, it's not just, you know, the extent of the coverage and not just the extent of coverage of the women's mat matches. It's also really great to see so many women covering men's cricket so authoritatively and with such respect. I mean, Ali Mitchell has just been, she's a pioneer as well. Um, she's one of my good friends and we're, we just constantly talk about how everything has changed. And then you look at someone like Ishigua, who's, you know, funny, composed, knowledgeable, all of this. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see. But like with everything, there's always room for improvement and there's room for change. But I think the pace at which everything's changing is is wonderful and it's really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it's fantastic to see uh, more females get involved in cricket, um, in all aspects of cricket. So it's, it's fantastic to, to hear that. Any tips and advice you would give to young journalists? and people who want to get into sports media or broadcasting or people who want to become an author and write a book if they want to? Uh, any advice you would give for those people? Okay, well, I think I think the main advice for all of that is just remain consistent. Just keep going, keep true to what your passion is and where you feel the most energy and excitement. I mean, I was always told you can't be a single sports journalist. And I did work at Sky Sports for several years prior to Crick Info, covering lots of different sports. But, you know, cricket was always the thing that drew me. So I think just remain calm, committed, enthusiastic. And, you know, a massive, massive thing is reliability that's more important than anything just keep showing up keep committed keep you know producing work it doesn't have to be volumes and volumes but do it you know do quality consistently and you know just be polite be respectful be grateful that's a massive thing when People help you um, when people give you experience. Be grateful, be polite. And then obviously when you get in that situation, pay it forward yourself. 
uh, we were talking before that the cricket community does look out for each other and we do help each other. Um, but yeah, it's an industry like any other. So, you know, um, just look out for yourself, manage your mental health because burnout is a real thing. It's an absolute real thing when you get there. And then when it comes to writing a book, I have written several books before. So that in itself has given me the knowledge that I can write this one because I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of magical thinking when it comes to writing a book in that you think, I can't do it or I'm waiting for the inspiration and anyone who wants to write a book, the book to read and my friends who are authors, we all would agree on this book, is Stephen King's On Writing. That's, all, that's the only book you need to read because I think, again, another trap you can fall into when writing a book is um, to procrastinate by just buying all the how to write a book books and never then writing yourself because you're waiting to be ready. No, write, just write. And Stephen King talks about, you know, there's no such thing as waiting for that muse to sit on your shoulder every day. It's not. It's literally bum on seat. Get yourself some bum glue. Like, yes, sure, make yourself an environment where you like to write good. But, again, everything in life, I think, comes back to consistency. Commit to writing something every day. It doesn't matter if it's not very good because – you can improve on it, and if you've got something out on the paper, you can work with it. But also, I would say, just do it. Just just get it done because, do you know, everybody thinks they can write a book, but very few people actually do it. And then when people do do it, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's no good because they've still achieved something magnificent. And then if it's good, that's, you know, that's, that's almost a bonus, really. Yes. But I think, you know, if you've got something to say, do it. Um, I was contacted by a young player in Sweden recently, and she said, I know you're writing a book, and I'm going to write one too on cricket, on women's cricket. I was like, that's fantastic. That's amazing. And she, she knows she's going to do it, and she will do it, because she has that self-belief. Um, yeah, I would also say for writing, if you can find yourself a supportive community, that's really good. I'm a member in South Australia of Writers SA and they have some really good courses, but more so I've met some fellow authors within it who, you know, we're always like, How's your book going? Oh, you know, we've got we we've got that shared support network which is really important because you know it's like gym buddies you need to keep each other accountable and accountability is massive because writing can be such a lonely endeavor as well mm. so it's is really cool when you've got friends who understand the position that you're in and are quite happy to sit there going you know to the nth degree discussing something really minute that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, life's too short. 
you know, just do things that you're passionate about and give it a go. That's um, it. You know, if you if you don't succeed, try again, as the old saying goes. Um, that's so it. that's excellent advice there, Jenny. Um, so, Jenny, let's talk about the reason that you're you're on here is uh, Herb World Cricket Tour. That's the reason we got you in the podcast in the first place to talk about this wonderful once in a lifetime journey that you've embarked on. And uh, basically, we've already touched on what's it all about, the aim of the tour, and it's mainly around women's cricket and how those countries around the world are doing to promote, grow and develop women's cricket, but also the game of cricket in general, in all aspects. And also speaking to the stakeholders within the game, so you know, players, cricket boards, uh, clubs and communities and community leaders on how they can improve the female participation within the game, but also make us make cricket a sport for all and include people from all backgrounds to play cricket from all walks of life. And cricket does that wonderfully well. And um, you've been to 54 countries on the tour, Jenny. I'm not going to attempt to read out the list because <laughs> it's quite a lot. Um, and even the list you gave me, you forgot to add uh, USA and Canada on there. So even you are forgetting the countries. That's right. On. Um, Too many. Uh, yeah, so 54 countries, and you've played many games of cricket in those countries from organised cricket, so either men's cricket or women's cricket or integrate uh, with men's and women's uh, cricket, um, any form of cricket on the street or beach or indoor cricket, any form of cricket, you name it, you've played it on the tour, uh, which is fantastic. And um, towards the end of February, uh, you will go to Fiji and Vanuatu. And then on the 21st of March, you will commence the last leg of the tour, which will see you away for six months. And by the end of Jenny, you would have visit, visited approximately 80 countries. And then we already talked about it before, but you will write a book and recall those wonderful stories and um, from your journey. Um, so, so, Jenny, for those who may not know what Her World Cricket Tour is about, tell us more about that and tell us what made you want to undertake this once-in-a-lifetime journey. I'm pretty sure people thought you were crazy, but um, <laughs> uh, just tell us about that. Well, you're absolutely right, and there's pretty much not a day goes by where I don't think I'm crazy. Um, but then there'll be those magic moments every single country that I'm in where I think, I'm actually doing this. Oh, I can hear some howler monkeys in the jungle because I'm in Belize. Or, oh, look, there's some eagles floating around because I'm at the top of a hill in Guatemala. Um, and it's those moments when I think, goodness me, this is, this is crazy, but it's crazy good. And um, in some ways, I wanted to do it because it's my dream, but I know it's many other people's dreams. So... I wanted to show people if I can do it, anyone could do anything they want to do. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, going around the world playing cricket. But definitely in Norway, some of my friends there have been inspired by what I'm doing. And now whenever they go on holiday, they try and jag a match wherever they're playing and uh, wherever they're going to because they've realised that it's a great way to meet people and to understand local and national problems within that country and you you know as well as me cricket is just instant pop-up friends like when I first moved to Australia 
16 years ago. I had no friends. And um, it was it, it feels like a cheat, cheat code, just going down your local club because suddenly, you know, you have all these friends. Um, and you really, really summed up the ethos of the tour just so well. Um, and I guess overarchingly, I'm really interested in women's, disadvantage and empowerment and to look at it through the lens of cricket is is it's actually perfect but you know I'm learning so much about women's lives in all these countries which was a real real aim of mine um and it's a really it turns out a really neat way of doing that um but yeah in terms of the tour how I came to think about it well I worked in the government for just over a decade and I was you know just sitting at my desk thinking it'd be great it'd be great to travel how good would it be to play cricket in different countries because you know I'd had the England experience the Aussie experience and a little bit of experience in India and I just thought oh it'd be so wonderful but even when I was thinking about it honestly I had zero idea how widespread well, first of all, cricket is, but also women's cricket. I mean, it's everywhere you go. It's it's astonishing and it's absolutely amazing. And it's actually unbelievable to the point where even last week I was at an event and I was talking with people and I said, oh, I'm going to Fiji in a few weeks. And they said, oh, but not as part of your tour. I said, of course, as part of my tour. And they said, well, they don't play cricket there. I said, well, that's funny because I just saw the Fiji women's cricket team playing in New Zealand and they were adamant. They said, no, they don't play cricket there. It's only rugby. I said, okay, well, that's contrary to my lived actual experience, but that's fine. But even more amusingly or confoundingly than that is after I've been to places, for example, Guatemala, I've had friends say, you know, um, oh, where have you been? What have you been up to? So it's like, oh, you know, uh, cricket, Guatemala. No, they don't have it, though. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't. No, um, I was literally just, I was just playing it there. Like, they really do have it. No, they don't. It's, it's like this dissonance where people can't understand that you're telling them something. Their brain doesn't compute it. And I don't think mine would, actually. And, Really, sometimes it doesn't, even when I'm there. haven't even processed half the countries that I've been to so far because I've been so busy catching up on my admin from those countries and arranging my next leg that I haven't even... I mean, I've written... I keep talking about my book and I've written half a page, but I know exactly what I'm writing. And that is uh, another tip. Another tip for writers is... Just make the start because that's 80% of the battle. You know, just that half page is just chilled me right out because I knew, I know all the books yeah, yeah. there and I know the content, but just having something on the page, there's something about that which is absolutely critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, out of the 54 countries you visited thus far, what's been your favorite country? that you visited and uh, which country are you most looking forward to visiting on the last leg of the tour that's coming up? 
Okay. You can't ask a question like, which is my favorite? Because, you They're know, that's like no. trying to pick a favorite child. Um, but, but if you had to choose one that stood out? One that stood out. Uh, I really liked Japan. I thought that stood out because the club rooms there and the facilities, the ground, the, the international ground at Sano is so reminiscent of an English mm. cricket ground that it created a lot of dissonance because you could see the, you know, the Japanese trees and the hills in the background. And I just come from Tokyo and, you know, then my friend took me to a temple and she's like, but then we're having this English cricket experience just right here. Um, and I spent the week with Japan cricket. And as I said, my friend um, works there, but I barely saw him actually because he was so busy doing other work. He wasn't around half the week either, but uh, great people, great time. And also... I went down to Kawasaki and I played a night match on a Saturday night with the Kawasaki Night Riders. And, you know, again, it was one of those moments of I'm playing cricket in Japan. And mm. to hear um, the team told me that depending on the makeup of the teams that week, they would either talk in English if that was the predominant first language or if that week it was Japanese then that's what they would do and it was a Japanese week and I just I loved it because you know I have no clue what's being said but I just know everyone's talking about cricket in Japanese and it was it was so amazing and then afterwards um, a couple of us went to a local um restaurant a very tiny local restaurant and everyone ordered for me and you know I was suddenly like wow this is such an experience that I just landed in lucky me um yeah so that was just that was a brilliant time but I also I'm gonna also have two because I also really liked Estonia because so many stories from there and so unexpected so firstly I met up there with an English man called Jason Barry, who in the nineties had played in more than a hundred and yeah, more than a hundred countries in his world cricket tour, and he'd organised the whole thing by fax. Then he moved to Estonia and set up cricket there at a time when there was barely any English, mm. and the only place they could find to play was a, a horse racing track at a venue called the Hippodrome and they had to sit down um, in the middle of the match when the horses would run by so as not to startle them and um, he said Jason told me that because there was a bit of lost in translation the management thought that they were going to play polo now this is quite a common misconception on the continent which remains baffling to me. I can understand when people misinterpret cricket as croquet, but I don't understand how you get polo. But anyway, they kept on sort of saying you need a horse license and they're like, no, we're playing cricket. 
in the end, they just thought it was easier to tack the um, the expense onto the bill. So they ended up with a horse license to play cricket that season. But also he set up ice cricket when the whenever the Baltic would freeze, which was quite frequent back in those days. But maybe it's a sign of climate change, but it doesn't do so much mm. this time. But even just um, talking with Estonia cricket, um, there's a guy who runs the women's cricket called Terry O'Connor, who's from Brisbane, and he's so passionate about women's cricket. And that the, the genesis of that was in Brisbane junior cricket when a girl was excluded when she turned 13 and they told her to go and find a girl's sport. And he said she was better than most of us. We went on to play rep cricket and I've never forgotten her tears and I'll always be an ally. And mm. fast forward now he is running Estonia women's cricket, having run Czech women's cricket. And he's that passionate about the game that um, – he got one of the players to create a glossary of terms. So there's 300 terms being translated into Estonian, but he also taught them the laws to the nth degree. So esoteric that one of the players, when he was umpiring, knew she could appeal for an obstructing the field, which I think is pretty, pretty good going. Mm -hmm. Um for anyone, never mind a new player to the game in Estonia. And she turned round and then to to appeal, but no words came out of her mouth because she realised that she hadn't been taught how to appeal. And that's great. That's a great um, marker of, you know, what we take for granted in cricket and how difficult it is trying to bring it into a new country. But I love that they were doing that there and the passion with which they were doing it was, you know, just, it was really wonderful. And Estonia, you just don't expect cricket there again. And, um, you know, yet we were playing, we played an outdoor match underneath the grounds of Snelly Castle. And it was just, again, you know, because Tallinn's such a beautiful old historical town, but you don't expect, you don't associate it with cricket, and yet there we were. And that's only a little smidgen of the stories from Estonia cricket. So that was, it's, um, it's, a great, it's a great country for stories and also for the love of cricket. So that was definitely another favourite. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which country are you most looking forward to visiting on the last leg? Okay, these, this is quite an easy one, um, and I'm going to say it, it's not just one, <laughs> but it's Barbados, and it's South Africa, specifically Cape Town, and it's Sri Lanka. And those three are joint equal because they are so imbued in my childhood cricket experience. I cannot right now still believe that I'm going to be in Barbados and at Newlands and in Colombo and hopefully I'll get to go because, you know, literally nine-year-old Jenny right now cannot believe this. This is, this is insane. I mean, I'm still in shock that I live in Australia and I've been here many, many years. You know, and I'd already been to New Zealand a few times and I've been to India before. 
But to go to those places is hard, believe it, but also really looking forward to Pakistan and Bangladesh because they're pretty traditional cricket countries as well. I haven't even got my head around the fact that I'm going there. Never mind, you know, Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, Namibia. It's just, it's just, it's just unreal. But also separately, I'm looking forward to going to Montenegro because I'm going to join with the Mediterranean Cricket League tournament, which is run by Aussies. So they often have like Brett Lee and Simon Katic there. This year there'll be Brad Hogg also Darren Maddy and also um, Romania's cult cricketer, Pavel Florin. I flew to Transylvania to meet him. He's so obsessed with cricket. He's great. And he, for those who don't know, he stars himself as the world's worst bowler. I mean, I know he has become quite a cult figure over in Australia, which is great. Um, I can't wait to link up with him again and just get involved with the MCL. But, you know, honestly, I... It's like I said, it's hard to have a favorite in the respect that often the lesser known cricket countries are really brilliant because I've got no expectation of what's going to go on there. Yeah. I mean, with Japan, I did because I knew through my friend that there was cricket there, but Estonia was a real revelation. So who knows what I'm going to find in these last 20 or so countries. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be exciting, that's for sure. And, um, yeah, we, we cannot wait. You know, obviously, you cannot wait, but we can't, can't wait ourselves to, to hear those stories when you do visit those countries in the last leg and share those stories with us. And such iconic cricket, cricketing countries, Barbados, a part of the West Indies, of course. It's the home of Sakafield Sobers, uh, one of the greatest West Indian players to ever play the game. All-rounders, uh, Kensington Oval, his home patch, um, that iconic venue in Test cricket history. And then Sri Lanka, you know, in Colombo, all the stadiums there are quite un- iconic. And South Africa as well, mm-hmm. Cape Town, Newlands, mm-hmm. Table Mountain in the background, such iconic. So very jealous, Jenny, very jealous. <laughs> that you're Come going with to- me. Come on well, tour. Everybody's welcome. Yeah. Well, let's just pack our bags and go with Jenny and... Yeah, go and have a cricket tour, I suppose. Bit of a cricket celebration. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people listening to this episode would be very jealous and say, oh, I wish I was doing that. You could. Well, just uh, book your plane ticket. Yeah. No, nah, do, do it. Do it. Life's too short. And, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Um, obviously, you've shared some of your stories from your tour, but is there one particular story that stands out that, you would look back on and say, oh, that was a favourite story from the tour. Can you share with us a favourite story that stood out to you on the tour that you've heard from someone? Okay. Well, again, it's it's a really tough question because there were so many. Uh, a very brief one is um, I did go to Colombia and I contacted though he wasn't in Colombia, but I'm hoping to catch up with him in England this summer. Um, Pablo Escobar's firstborn son is a wicketkeeper. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's most extraordinary and most unexpected. And his story itself is completely 
wild and it just I love I just love you know not, not paradoxical but just unexpected um situations like that because you don't you obviously you just don't expect it but what happened was um he ended up being um adopted by an mi6 agent who brought him back to the agent's native england and put him in um private school over there and that's where his love of the game developed and then one day he wasn't told who his real father was and then one day he was um but now he's an art an artist um he paints in Mallorca so he's he's living a lovely quiet life over there and he does condemn his dad for everything that he ever did but mm. you know i have i have a dream to get him to come back to colombia to help develop cricket in colombia because i think that would be a lovely story um whether feral hippos stop play or not is a different matter but um yeah i just i i love how unexpected that that situation is um yeah. yeah i mean there's like i say there's as we know there's so many other stories but the good thing is that any stories that i don't get to tell you today will find a home in my book anyway so yeah um, that was a quite interesting story that you shared there unexpected <laughs> very unexpected but hey you know if if you didn't go to colombia and you you wouldn't have found out this story so that's what the tour is all about. Um, yes, if, if you had to pick a favourite moment from the tour, favourite moment that stood out. I know this is another hard question again, but, you know, what will it be, that favourite moment from the tour where you look back and say, oh, that was a, that was a fun moment? I really liked scoring, which I got to do at the ICC World Cup qualifier Europe um, in Spain um, it was a lovely coming back to my youth as the first team scorer at our family club and um, we talked before about the sounds and smells of cricket and you mentioned one of my favourites which is the spikes or the concrete mm, but yeah. another of my favourite sounds not that we got to do this in Spain it was pulling the tins round and you just <laughs> when you you know putting the score on uh, and it was just so nice to score again because I don't think I'd done that not probably since the 90s and there's just something really lovely and flowing about it and as I'm saying this to you I realize exactly how tragic I sound because I've been <laughs> I've been around the whole world. <laughs> And I'm just telling you, I like putting some runs in a book. <laughs> but that's what cricket is, isn't it? You know, you yeah. could ask me tomorrow, I'd have a different story. I'd have a different great memory, you know, every day of the year. But that's the one that I just suddenly thought of when you mentioned that. Because it took me back to my, you know, youth and my family club, which, of course, I'm going around looking at everything globally, but I'm really interested in what's lovely for people locally. And of course, you know, that's my connection. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, that's, um, I think everyone can relate to that. You know, mm-hmm. you've done those in cricket and uh, they, they just stick out in your mind. So that's, you know, scoring's the most difficult job in cricket. Uh, you know, trying to get get it right and correct and, you know, match up the numbers and, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's an important job. So, uh, you know, at least you got to give it a go. Um, so that was good to hear. Um, if people wanted to undertake this sort of tour, what advice would you give them if they wanted to do a tour of this magnitude, either as a cricket tour but also a personal tour just to travel the world in general? What would be the top tip that you would give for people who want to embark on this journey of discovery? Well, I would just say just do it. I mean, that's a really obvious thing to say, but seriously, just do it. If it's your dream, whatever your dream is, it doesn't matter whether it's a cricket tour or a tour around the world. Seriously, just do it. We have said how many times already, life is too short to not go for what you really, really want to do. Um yeah, uh, it's that simple. Um, if, in terms of, it, in term, for a world tour, uh, in terms of a cricket tour, uh, I guess it depends if you want to play or what you want to do. I mean, if you want to go and watch, that's pretty straightforward to organise. Uh, if you want to go and play, it's slightly harder. But it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible. Um, and also... Like you say, the magnitude, absolutely right. Um, and by the time I decided last year I was definitely going to do it, it was this time last year, I had two months before I set off, which was crazy. That really was crazy. I have never been, I've never worked harder in my life. I was chucking like 16-hour days just to get the admin done um, and the connections set up and my logistics and everything, just even trying to convince people that it was legit and not fully crazy, just a little bit crazy. Um, but, you know, I did I have I had a few panic attacks. I wanted to pull out of the tour before I'd even begun. I was terrified, actually. Um, I remember speaking with mum and dad, who were brilliant. They were always calm and I've got, you know, very sage advice. And, you know, I just said, oh, I need to, I can't, I can't do it. This is not happening. I can't do it. Um, but at that point, I was there entertainment in the dark England winter months about what was going to happen today, what I'd set up this week on the tour, what I'd found out, you know. And um, so partly, you know, partly that was why they said I had to keep going. But, you know, they said literally, just take things one step at a time, just do one thing, just break it down. I mean, I know that the old joke, how do you eat an elephant one spoon at a time, but it's so true. It's so true. And then just, I think also I like, I really like the saying that everything you want is on the other side of fear. And that's so true. I mean, I'm really calm now about my tour and because I know roughly what to expect and I've done all my due diligence in terms of safety and preparation and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, as a woman traveling, you've got to be extra careful. But 
as a woman in the world, you know, you're vulnerable wherever you are in your own house often. So you can't not do something because you're scared, but just take those precautions. But I would always urge anyone to try to fight through the fear um, to get to where you really want to be because once you're there, you actually can be really quite proud of yourself for mm. having done the scary thing because uh, it's very, very easy to talk yourself out of something. And that's the other thing, I believe. Maybe some advice I would also give if you're planning on doing a world tour is make yourself accountable to something or someone around the way because that will make you do it. Because, like I said, I was really keen to just cancel the whole thing. But, yeah. you know, it's like no people are expecting you. And that pulled me through the countries, really. And then, you know, initially I was going to announce I'm just doing a sort of 10-country Asia test. Maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. But it was so wishy-washy that I realised I had to actually because I'd made myself publicly accountable, I just made a Facebook page. I said, right, this is her World Cricket Tour. Off we go. And then people started taking me seriously. And in the early stages, I hadn't even gone anywhere. And I was giving talks. I've been asked to, you know, give talks. I was on, like, BBC Worldwide just with my idea. But at this point, I couldn't back out because I'd made myself accountable. So just to... Trick yourself, set as many traps as you can for yourself, make it extremely hard for yourself to back out of something and then just just go for it, just do it because, you know, it's almost trite, but I guess it's, it is at the same time a truism that, you know, you never, or you hardly regret, you're going to have more regrets about the things you don't do than the things you do by and large. Yeah, uh, I think that's great advice. Um, you know, once the tour is over, Jenny, and you have a moment to reflect, you put the last word in the book, you <gasps> finish the, the leg of the of the second leg of the tour, and you get off the plane back in Australia, arriving from your last country. Uh, what will be the one thing that you'll be most proud of from, from the tour? If you Once that's all said and done, you look back, what's the one thing that you'll be most proud of? from this great achievement that you've achieved? It would be the fact that I did what I said. Because I'm not someone who has small ideas. I always have big ideas and I always match it with massive enthusiasm. But frequently, those ideas, I don't go through with them because either I get more information as I'm going along and I think, no, that's actually not the right situation or idea to pursue for whatever reason. Um, but in this case, it happens to have been, and it is because I've designed it that way, I guess, everything that I completely love, which is people talking, travel, cricket, playing, watching, scoring. I've done some umpiring. I think it's really difficult. Um, but... I will just be really pleased with the fact that I've done what I said I would do and I didn't 
allow myself to come up with an excuse to just yeah. cut it at any point. Uh, and in fact, the more it goes on, the more enthusiasm I have for everything. And yes, I get really tired. And yes, you know, but I just, this is what I was saying before about, you know, getting into journalism or anything, anything in life. The most important thing is committing. Commit to something every day. And there'll be many days where you don't bring your best, but it doesn't matter as long as you keep going because it's what you achieve or what happens over the long term, then, you know, you, you so much more than just a bad day here or there. And I think I'll just be really just really proud of um, literally just doing what I said I would. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. Um, and, you, and you should be proud of this great achievement once it's completed. And, and um, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Now that Hi, everyone. Hope you enjoyed part one of our cricket discussion with Jenny Thompson from Her World Cricket Tour. I hope you enjoyed hearing Jenny and I discuss her cricketing journey and her World Cricket Tour. Stay tuned for part two of our cricket discussion with Jenny Thompson from Her World Cricket Tour.